Hi, this is Larry Pasca, Executive Director of NCSS, the National Council for the Social Studies. This episode features an author published in an NCSS journal. Please enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, do you ever remember protesting as a child? Like you must have you must have challenged things, right? You must have wanted to change the situation and this and the status quo. Yeah, no. Yeah. Prior to dinner during the summers, we had to eat sliced tomatoes from my mother's garden, which she pronounced garden. And I hated it so much. It was mm-hmm. literally because you get called in early and you have to eat tomatoes, which are disgusting. And so one day I told her I would eat no more tomatoes. And I ate tomatoes that day. But the following day, I said the same thing. And this was such this pinnacle moment in my life. That, uh, cause I don't eat tomatoes anymore. I don't eat tomatoes, period, uh, since this day, except for that one time when someone snuck a tomato in a sandwich. But that was annoying. But uh, I asked my, my <laughs> parents about it, or I asked my mom about it a couple of years back. She has no recollection of this. But for me, this was like, this is peak me. Right. And it's like a big moment when you're a kid, like the things that are happening in your life, you know, they, they're big. I mean, it's, I, just like adults, right? Like I our work tomatoes. and our jobs, our relationships become important. We see injustice in our schools and the rules that guide us at our universities, wherever we're at, right? We get mad about it and we sometimes do something, but sometimes we don't have like good skills to address that, right? Like we just complain to someone and then we don't do anything. Yeah. A lot of times I feel like, oh, I have a, a coworker who's next door and sometimes we uh, will say, oh, that was really annoying, but that's how right. far it goes between the walls and there's a line right like to to like but other times we do change. stuff just so everyone like i'm, I'm not very pat like i do do stuff sometimes. <laughs> i, I believe you yeah but i mean i think sometimes it's really important to if if the issue actually is sometimes you need to vent of mm-hmm. course we all do as educators but if like sometimes things really do need to change the way a school structured a school policy something like that and you know if we as educators can't figure out productive ways to make change in our schools, it's kind of hard as social studies educators to, to, you know, teach kids how to make change in the world, which is like kind of what we tell them all the time, like vote, you can change the world. Right. Oh yeah. And, and, and then we don't even change like the, the terrible policies in our school. I was thinking about like the role of protest in us history. I teach us history and it's interesting. Like we have like the, the Boston tea party, we have like all these, not just Boston Tea Party, but all these times where like the colonists were like, oh, we're going to make our own stuff so we don't have to buy stuff from Britain, right? These are all forms of protest that have just been embedded within the curriculum. I've been teasing that out the past few years, and it's been kind of fun and interesting to like talk about people as actors. And that was one of the, in the recent episode we had where Marie Heath on, we had written that article where we talked about like, we often teach about the civil rights movement, but sometimes yeah. we don't teach about like, really, really, they made all the change but we don't teach them as tactics right like these are things you can do in society because that's kind of scary right like you teach your kids oh you can boycott this or you can do it and all of a sudden they're empowered and can challenge the power structures in schools that's you know 
it, it kind of goes along with it. That's interesting. So I can definitely see this like in the upper grades. I feel like it's easier to like middle and in high school. I wonder if you can bring this to like younger students. Well, I think young Michael was already a protester, right? He That's true. Had had enough with tomatoes. Absolutely. Uh, and I probably did learn it from a, a teacher who said, hey, sometimes you can say no. Boycott. They, you yes, boycott my mom. I wouldn't say that young Michael was Alice Paul because she did it in a much more serious way, but she could have served as a model. I wonder if I learned about Alice Paul in the second grade. Possibly. It's possible. It is hard to remember the social studies lessons from young, even if they probably impact us. So maybe we should bring in some guests who can help us think about how you can teach young kids about things like protests. Yes. So we actually happen to have two great guests today to talk just about this. We have Dr. Jessica Ferreras-Stone and Dr. Sarah Demoyne. Come on in. How are you all doing? Hi, doing good. How are you doing? Doing well. Thank you. <laughs> Happy to be here. And we're thrilled to have you here, too. Do you mind telling us a little bit more about your background in education? Yeah, so this is Sarah here, and I went to an undergrad program for elementary education and graduated in 2002 from a small school in East Tennessee and moved to Philadelphia and began teaching in the city in Philadelphia, where I taught eighth grade for four years and sixth grade for four years before moving back to Tennessee and beginning to do more graduate work. Now I am at Auburn University and I teach as an assistant professor in an elementary ed program there. And this is Jessica. And I began my career in the classroom and then I moved into school administration and then decided to go get a doctorate in education. That's actually where Sarah and I met. And after I completed my degree, I moved to Western Washington University, where I teach predominantly multicultural education and social studies education courses. That's really cool. What? So it's I always think about our paths into you know being education professors, right? It's such an interesting road because we travel along it. We take these you know methods courses ourselves and work our way there. What what have what do both of your emphasis like in your classes? What research and scholarship and work are you really interested in? So as I stated earlier, I focus on multicultural um, education, and my path to that is a very organic path, uh, particularly in the social studies. We have a very Eurocentric social studies curriculum, and so all throughout school, I learned about people that had no resemblance of, of myself, and so I wanted to help change that, that narrative, particularly in social studies, so that students are, are learning about a diverse group, a, a diverse story, a diverse narrative. And so it's, it's a nice pairing, as I see it, where I can focus on multiculturalism and, and do that in multicultural specific courses. But it also really aligns so well with social studies and the ways in which we can diversify and we need to diversify and be more inclusive to include more voices. Um, and I feel passionate about it because my, I, I never felt like my voice was included. That's been a story a lot of our, you know, unfortunately, that's like a repetitive story for particularly a lot of our scholars of color who've come on this podcast that like ignited their career, that they were upset not seeing themselves represented. And so educators, if you're not catching the trend, make sure in your class you look at who you're reading in your class, whose work you're studying, right? It's always a, a good reminder to, to look back at our syllabi and look at our curriculum and our standards. And, you know, if people that, if there's not a... Uh, not just a diversity of people, but a diversity of, of, of perspectives. And moreover, thinking about the whole narratives we center and whose stories we center. 
it's really important to constantly do that work and rethink that. So that's really cool. Yeah, I think kind of following up, you said that Jessica's story is pretty common. And I think my story into the work that I do is quite common at this point, too, in terms of it being a white savior story. So or what started out as that. So I left Tennessee and went to Philadelphia, as I mentioned just a moment ago, really excited to go work in an inner city school and really enacting everything that you can think of in a white savior mentality going into the classroom. But I was teaching social studies and I had never been asked in my methods courses how my race and my own experiences affected the way in which I understood the world. Um, And I was never thinking about how my students' experiences needed to really be brought into the narrative of this country in a really authentic way. And so I made a lot of mistakes and really probably caused a lot of harm when I first began teaching and then began learning more about ideas around whiteness and white supremacy. um, And that really drives my work now and thinking about how to incorporate and make race and racism an important part of social studies education and teacher education and then also um, in K-12 education as well. So it's interesting to hear Sarah um, describe how she entered into the space because her and I met when we were both doing our doctoral studies together. And right away, the ways in which she and I communicated, I I saw an authentic person who cared and somebody who I wanted to to partner with and who I thought we, we could do good work together. And then well, so we're so glad to have you here in general, but specifically, we're here to celebrate your recent publication in Social Studies in the Young Learner. Congratulations on your pub. Thank you. Woohoo! So this is in the September-October issue of SSYL, and it is titled, Why Are People Marching? Discussing Justice-Oriented Citizenship Using Picture Books. Can you tell us about this article? So one of the things that I thought was crucial as we began this article was that social studies needs to be uh, making intentional connections to present day. I I just remember studying about a bunch of old white people and thinking, like, what does that matter in my life? Right. And so I think we're seeing levels of activism that haven't been quite as high in the past. And so our students are, are, are they're seeing this and they're wondering what's happening. And I specifically remember as a child in the 90s, which I know kind of dates me a little bit, but in the 90s, I remember the Elian Gonzalez case. And I remember my family being um, deeply affected by that because we are Cuban and and because it was such a big and important case. And and I remember them talking about going and, and marching and whether or not they actually did. I, I actually don't know. I should probably go ask my mom that question. But I just remember thinking like, is that okay? Are you breaking the rules if you do that? And I remember not asking that question and wondering if it was going to be okay if she became an active citizen like that. And and so when I'm seeing these levels of activism now, I think our students are also asking those questions. And I want to encourage our, our educators to engage in that question and not be stunned when a, a child potentially ask that, or maybe just to hit it off at the past and just talk about how activism in the past has positively influenced our society and the benefits that we reap as a result of it in order to understand the sorts of change that current activism is seeking. And I think to follow along with that, I noticed as I was teaching social studies methods courses to elementary pre-service teachers that the students would be really excited to look back at protests that happened in the past. So maybe looking at protests against 
child labor. Or I remember um, students looking at images from the civil rights movement and a student, one student specifically commented, this is really interesting. I feel like everyone looks so calm. And the idea of it being calm and um, the ways in which they were thinking about peaceful protesting, I recognized they weren't connecting kind of activism from the past to activism to today. And so as they would talk about like Black Lives Matter marches or March for Our Lives or things like that, they would see those as something that was dangerous or not very safe, but weren't connecting to looking at these um, protests during the civil rights movement as something that was also not liked by a majority of people at the time. And so their idea of activism and citizenship was really skewed. So as Jessica and I were kind of talking about these experiences, we're really drawn to um, Westheimer and Khan's concepts of citizenship, of personal responsibility, participatory and justice oriented. And there's been a lot of work showing that teachers, especially elementary teachers, really focus on personal responsibility when teaching citizenship. What are kind of the rules we can make in our class and how can we volunteer to be a good citizen, but would rarely talk about justice-oriented citizenship, which really propelled change to happen. And so that really caused us to want to think about how can we create this inquiry or unit idea where students are wrestling with citizenship beyond um, simple individual choices and looking more at oppressive structures that they can begin to challenge. And even when we teach like participatory citizenship, so often we teach it through the traditional institutions of government, which may be the very institutions that are oppressing certain people, right, in society. So when you say call your senator, who's the one who wrote the bill to harm your community, um, that's also can be like really problematic. So yeah, it's so important to look at beyond, like you said, the uh, personal responsibility, but even participatory citizenship. I mean, you know, people march for a lot of reasons. Some of them are really good. Some of them are really bad. And so I love focusing on the justice oriented component because um, I think that's the type of democracy we want. So that's really, that's a really important thing. But I agree, it doesn't seem to happen enough. And I think along with that, students often um, think about even when they begin to grapple with ideas of justice oriented citizenship, they then think, okay, that's something for me to think about as an adult, as a pre-service teacher or as a, an in-service teacher, but how in the world am I going to talk about that with younger students? How do I talk about that with a second grader? So that was the challenge that um, Jessica and I came to as we were talking about this project. Nice. So challenge was accepted. And where did we go with this? So one of the things that we did to help teachers feel confident to engage in this topic was to outline a, a unit that focused on some picture books. And we created some critical analysis questions to help students understand and critically analyze the protests, which one of the questions that we en encourage teachers to use is who benefits from these injustices? Who is hurt by these injustices? What fears might the protesters have? What fears might the opponents have? How do you think the protesters would describe the injustices they seek to change? Ooh, I like those questions. Those are really good. And they center the experiences of the activists. I like that a lot. So in this unit that we outlined, we um, set each day to highlight a specific picture book. 
So for the first day of the unit, we recommend the book Peaceful Fights for Equal Rights, which was written by Rob Sanders. And I think it's we should note that in the inside of the book, um, he writes in honor of those who lost their lives at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School and those who found their voices. And in this book, he outlines and does um, great imagery, different ways in which people have fought for for equal rights. And it does, a, like I said, a, a brief overview, a lot of image analysis that can happen in there. And then at the end of the book, he has a glossary that's very appropriate for elementary grade students. So it really drew us into a introductory lesson where students can either depict a single image or pick a couple of images and get an overview of the different types of protests and activism that have taken part throughout history. That's really cool that they take that the author takes such motivation from the Parkland students' activism. Um, and we actually had a recent episode, episode 122, with Kathleen Knight Abowitz and Dan Memlock, where they talked about how we can kind of teach about that and what we can learn from that activism. Bigfoot is looking at Brave Girl, Clara, and the Shirtwaist Makers Strike of 1909. And this really focuses in on injustices of child labor, injustices of working conditions, particularly for new immigrants into the United States. And for each of the books, we highlight some questions that um, teachers could ask, but then also focus on activism vocabulary. And so for this book, we specifically highlight the idea of a strike, a walkout, and a union. And these all tie back to the picture from the first day, Peaceful Fights for Equal Rights. And to help students understand the are used in political activism and those are things that were used in the past and also can be used today. Clara Lemlich, she her name pops up in a, a book that I read my daughter quite often actually. So I was just kind of cool that to, to see this. This will be a, a good sequel for her. During the last ARA in uh, New, when it was in uh, New York City, my step-niece is a student at NYU and she was like showing me the campus. And we just turned a corner and she's like, oh, and this is where the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire happened. And I was like, what? Really? Here? And we just turned and there was a big plaque that said it happened there. And so anyway, I really like nerd out during those moments and want to sit down and read all about a full book on the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, like sitting there. But it's an incredible, it's a really incredible book. I just do, uh, one of my teacher candidates actually chose that issue in that book for their journey box they did in our class where they gathered primary sources around it and created a really cool lesson and, and Brave Girl was one of the resources that they had to go in combination with the primary documents. This is the second time you've talked about these journey boxes. I feel like we have to go into these in the future. I know, episode. we'll have to talk about it. It's basically just um, allowing kids to look at primary sources. So for day three, um, we look at the civil rights movement and um, particularly highlight the book, The Youngest Marcher. And that is looking at the story of Audrey Faye Hendricks and her um, participation in the Children's March in Birmingham in 1963, where many children marched and were actually taken to jail for protesting during this time. I think one of the strengths of, of that book, The Youngest Marcher, is that it looks at it from the perspective of a child. And it's not very often that students, especially young learners, get to see um, and hear about history from a child's perspective, which also carries over into day four. Si se puede um, talks about um, Carlitos and his mother during the janitor strike in Los Angeles in 2000. I think this book is a strong text and it's also a bilingual text. 
so students can see both languages honored, which I think is really important inside of our classrooms. Ironically, I also have a connection to, to this because I was in L.A. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles, and so I remember the janitor's strike. And so it seems recent to me, although it might not seem that recent to um, our students. But in this book, um, Carlitos's mother works a lot and um, takes part in the Si Se Puede march. And there's a part in the book where Carlitos uh, makes, and his classmates make signs and join in as well. And so one of the questions that we um, invite teachers to ask when critically analyzing this book is, Carlitos decides to help his mom by bringing signs to the march. What are other ways that Carlitos could have helped his mom? And so we want to engage learners in the idea that there are multiple correct answers, right? And so I think so often young students are like, well, what, what's, what's the right thing to do? And there's, there's only one solution path. And so what we're inviting them to see here is there's lots of ways to be an active citizen. And so it's a matter of figuring out what it is you stand for and then finding out how your voice can be honored within that. And so we hope to get at that by encouraging that question. It seems like you kind of get at it by using four different books, right? I mean, you're you're giving different perspectives on being an activist and getting involved. And so even the, the breadth of the book seems like it's really good. So how do you finish out this, this unit? So we finish this out with um, a Socratic seminar and pose some questions to students asking some basic questions like, why do people protest? But then getting into questions of do good citizens protest. I think a lot of times in elementary school, we talk about and encourage students to be good citizens, and we focus just on character education and doing that. But when we pose this question after this unit, do good citizens protest, it really challenges the idea or expands the idea, at least, of what a good citizen can be and allows students to really wrestle with these more complex issues of what citizenship can look like and how they can act as a good citizen beyond just following classroom rules or things of that nature. We also include within this some extension ideas. So there are primary source photographs, newspaper articles, oral histories that are tied to each of these books for each day that teachers could also use if they're wanting to integrate literacy skills into a social studies unit like this, um, which would be easy to do with primary source analysis. What strategies do you have to getting students to interact with the with the text? I think one of the biggest strengths of picture books is the visual literacy component and how much students can take away, not just from the text, but from the images, right? And so I have found that students are, are very engaged when they take a look at the pictures. And so as a teacher, then I can draw them to those pictures and I can say, what other things do you notice in, in the images? And actually, there's a question that we that we put here. What one of the um, as the as students are engaging with picture books, I, I've always found that I don't struggle to get students to engage when I use a picture book. I have I, they struggle. I struggle to get them to engage when I'm using a textbook. It's big, it's thick, it's boring, it's written from a third person point of view. And yet picture books, they diversify the voices that we honor. Right. They, they can be told, for example, from a child's perspective, they um, bring in these traditionally mar these voices that have been marginalized. And so I find that with just bringing out the book 
gets them excited. And um, the books, the books bring back in the drama, right? Because so often the the textbooks have sucked all the drama of it right. out. Just like this is what happened, and this was what always had to happen. And the picture books get you into the story. I've always found, and so I've all ages. By the way, I can't say that enough. I used picture books with my high school students, and they were like transported back to elementary, and always seemed to really enjoy them. I think it's really helpful too to pair the picture books with a primary source. So if students are reading the picture book and then see a photograph that was taken of that protest or of that strike, that helps it become more real to them. And then also I think it's really helpful. I know for one of these, we include a link for an oral history of someone that participated in the um, Children's March along with Audrey Faye Hendricks and um that's really powerful for students to just hear the story that goes along with the book that they're just reading. Do you like to do that usually before to kind of like prepare them for the book or do you like to read the book first and do it after or what's kind of your approach to it? I actually find that students often get so caught up in the words that sometimes they miss what some of the images can convey to them. So actually my favorite way to start a picture book is to just go through all the pictures and say, what do you notice? What do you think might happen and why do you think that? And so what I find that when I do that, that then they are looking for ways to either validate what some of their predictions were or to discredit um, what some of those predictions were. But they notice specific items and images they wouldn't have otherwise. And then afterwards, I would um, maybe address some of those additional pieces. That's really good. And I also love how you include activism vocabulary. We so often have academic vocabulary, and that's like a term we use often for our emergent bilingual students. But I like activism vocabulary. That's good. We should add that into all of our lesson plans. <laughs> I like that uh, in the, the lesson that you shared, you also have questions about the text and questions about the images and graphics that uh, teachers can kind of check out for themselves. Make sure you do check out the article. Uh, there's some great resources there. I'm thinking of using it in my class on Monday. This is great. Um, we're Me too. Really, uh, there we go, right? Immediate impact. And since people will listen to this podcast after my Monday class, you can tweet me and ask me if I did use it. Um, but it's great because I'm thinking a lot this semester how I can make my curriculum more emergent. And I'm realizing from this, like the importance of slowing down and showing them examples of activism. Because I think part of me wants to jump right into the activism and how you do it. And uh, so I really appreciate this talk. Thank you. Thank you. I just would want to add that I know that elementary social studies is often pushed to the side with a focus on um, literacy and math instruction. And I feel with this unit, there are very easy ways for teachers to integrate English language arts standards into this while also talking about authentic content. And so I think it's just a great platform to integrate disciplines in an authentic way, but also for, to give teachers kind of justification for talking about this in the class. Do the social studies folks, we need justice-oriented citizens. So Jessica Ferreira-Stone and uh, Sarah Demoyne, thank you so much for, for joining us and talking about your, your article. Thank you for having, thank you for having us. us. So where can our listeners find both your work online so we can keep learning from you too? Well, I don't know that I have a huge online presence per se, yeah. but Jessica yeah. and I, <laughs> Jessica and I um, do try to present together at NCSS every year. Hey, and then try to write we go there. An article about that. 
So we do have an article coming out in The Counselor, which is the state social studies journal in Illinois, that is about using Latinx text sets to help kind of diversify texts that students are thinking about and looking at Latinx perspectives in a very expansive way and modern, not a monolithic one. Um, and then we also just presented a poster at NCSS about using art to the study social movement um, and thinking about the ways in which um, our activism works that kind of ties along with what we just um, discussed with you all. So that's not written up yet, but that's the goal for this year. Well, we'll definitely get that added in the show notes. Jessica, did you want to add anything to that? I'm good. Okay. I also don't have a big social um, media presence. Uh, you guys are so. gonna be, wait till you're famous after this episode drops, and then you're going to, people will demand, you're going to get letters in the mail saying, what why don't it? you tweet more wisdom? What what is it called when you're when you're on twice friend friend of friend of the friend of the pod you listen right. <laughs> yeah. yes hey <laughs> amazing right yeah wow. that that's you know once we drop those words it just changes people's lives oh my goodness yeah <laughs> well you know, I'm, I'm not a friend so I'm not sure yes. life changing yet yeah, so yeah. you guys got to start preparing for these things right get your PR person in place like you're gonna have to have somebody to handle all the all I need the, a person like tenders. that. To like uh, all my stuff for me. <laughs> Zach's good people. I would say definitely going in third year review dossier before it's submitted at the end of the month. Right? Yes, and we can get you. You know, we don't. We need to sit. And we need to have an email update for all our uh, podcast guests, Michael, and let them know this. You know, the numbers on their episodes, so this, so they can report that. So. Well, we enjoyed having you both on so much today, and we certainly do hope to continue the discussion online. We're going to add stuff in the show notes, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back, and, and then you'll be friends of the pod officially. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. Uh, thank you. At the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to chat, and sometimes we get it, hit us up at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook. And if you haven't already, and really, come on, subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you'd like us to be. And if you really want to be a podcast activist, you can leave us a five-star review and we will read it on the air. And as always, our new tradition, we'd like to remember to thank Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Texas for his editing skills. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kratka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.